We are going to be talking today about the non-commercial loss provisions and how they apply to partnerships. And I know we covered this on an earlier episode, back on episode 369, which came out late last year. Division 35 presents losses from non-commercial business activities carried on by individuals being offset against other income in the same income year. The rules apply to an individual either operating alone or in a partnership, but special rules apply where a partnership is involved. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 376 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to DocuSign for sponsoring this episode. Last year in episode 369, we spoke about the non-commercial loss provisions that sit in Division 35 of the 97 Act. And we also spoke about the safe harbour routes, which back then in November set in PCG 2022-D2. That PCG has since been issued and is now PCG 2022-1. So if you have clients affected by fire, drought, flooding or COVID, then this PCG 2022-1 allows you to self-assess the commissioner's discretion. So that is a good PCG to have. And so last year, we focused on the general concept of the non-commercial loss provisions and the safe harbor routes, but we put partnerships aside. There are additional routes for partnerships regarding the non-commercial loss provisions, and we didn't cover those special routes back then. So let's do that today. Ben Miller of Walters Kluwer Australia kindly agreed to walk you through these special routes for partnerships. But before we do that, let me just quickly walk you through Division 35 again, just very quickly. You start with the income requirement. The individual's adjusted taxable income must be less than 250,000. And that adjusted taxable income is the total of four components, taxable income plus reportable fringe benefits, plus reportable super contributions, plus total net investment losses. So you add these four components together. If the total is more than 250,000, you have to defer the loss. You are done. Yes, in theory, you could ask for the commissioner's discretion, but in most cases, don't bother. When your income is over 250000 the commissioner is not going to have much, much empathy for your predicament. You probably are earning more than the commissioner by that stage. Anyway, if the total is less than 250000 you continue. You need to pass one of the following four tests, unless you are in a primary production or professional arts business. If you are in primary production or professional arts and your other income is less than 40,000, then you don't need to pass any additional tests. The fact that your income is only $40,000 or less is all you need. But now let's assume you're not in primary production and you're not in professional arts and your income passes the income requirement. It is less than 250,000. So now you need to pass one of the following four tests. The assessable income test says that you must have assessable income of at least 20,000 Australian dollars. The profits test says that you must have a profit of at least one cent in three of the past five years. And you count the current year, year that just passed. You count that year in those five years. The real property test applies when you have real property of $500,000 or more. And the other assets test applies when you have other assets of more than 100000 And I'm a little bit wobbly on whether it's at least that amount or exceeding that amount. Sorry, I just quickly looked that up. It is at least, at least 20000 at least one cent, at least 500000 and at least 100000 So it's always at least 
that amount. If you pass the general income requirement but fail all of the four tests, you can apply for the commissioner's discretion and there you have some chance of getting it. And especially if you meet the conditions in PCG 2022-1, then you don't even need to ask the commissioner but can self-assess assuming you meet the listed special circumstances. So these are the commercial loss provisions for sole traders. But how does this change for partners and partnerships? How do the non-commercial loss provisions in Division 35 of the 97 Act apply to partnerships? That is the question that Ben Miller of Walters Kluver is covering with you now. But Ben and I had huge hurdles to take in this episode. We spoke for well over 60 minutes to get 30 minutes of audio. And the reason is that something was wrong with our internet connection. Ben was in Fremantle, I was in Sydney, and something happened in Fremantle or Sydney or somewhere in between. We lost connections every few minutes. It was really frustrating. We tried really hard to fix it. Ben moved his desk right next to the modem. We locked out, locked back in, started the meeting, closed it. You know, we really tried hard, but nothing worked. So in the end, we recorded our audio locally and that worked fine. So hopefully you don't really notice any of this. But if you find some parts disjointed or wonder where the heck I am and why Ben has to carry the whole load by himself, then you know what happened. So here's Ben Miller of Walters Kluver about the non-commercial loss provisions for partnerships. So Division 35 prevents losses from non-commercial business activities carried on by individuals being offset against other assessable income in the same income year. Now, we talked about this back in episode 369 that came out in November 2022, but I'd like to just rejig everyone's memory over a moment just to make sure that everybody is fully aware of how the general rules apply. And that is that the, the rules apply to an individual whether they're operating either alone or in a partnership. But as we're going to discuss in this session, the special rules do apply where a partnership is involved. The general rule is that where deductions in real business activity for a year exceed the accessible income from the business activity for that year. Then they need to meet the income requirement and then... activity satisfies one of four threshold tests for the income year or the commissioner exercises his discretion or there is one of two exemptions that apply to the general rules. And this is what we discussed at length in episode 369. So I'm just going to quickly touch on them. The four threshold tests that we all know is the assessable income test, which is if the amount of assessable income from the business activity is $20,000 or more, it will not be treated as a non-commercial business activity and the loss rule, loss deferral rule does not apply. There's also the profits test, which is three of the last five income years, including the current year. If the business activity had a profit, then the loss to fall rule does not apply. There's the real property test, which is the total reduced cost basis of real property used on a continuing basis. Carrying on the business activity is at least $500,000. The loss deferral rule does not apply. And the other assets test, which is similar to the real property test, but it obviously excludes real property as well as other things like motor vehicles. If that number is greater than $100,000 for assets that are used on a continuing basis in the business, then the loss deferral rules do not apply. So now that leaves us to partnerships. Can I just very quickly ask you a question, Ben? So motor vehicles are always excluded, correct? Motor vehicles are not in the real property test and they're also not in the other asset test. 
That's correct. I believe that's a rule that will allow the commissioner to understand. And especially that might be an example where the motor vehicle is not necessarily a car. It could be where it is, say, for example, a utility vehicle or some sort of truck or some uh, something of that nature. So if the motor vehicle is a truck or a van, then they do go into the test. It's just normal cars that don't go into these tests. That's right. Generally speaking, from an income tax perspective, the car is has a carrying capacity of less than one ton and is designed to carry uh, nine or less passengers as you would normally uh, constitute a car. But obviously there are certain vehicles that are outside of that category and they would be included in the other assets test. So now we realize that no amount of moving around and fiddling will fix the internet connection. So Ben now is recording his voice locally. So we won't have any more dropouts and it will just be a clear run from here. It just means that I'm gone at times. So you will hear a lot less questions from me because, because the internet connection will be gone for big chunks of this interview. How does Division 35 apply to partnerships? I mentioned at the, the top there that there are special rules that apply to the partnerships. So effectively, the way that Division 70, uh, the way that Division 35 operates is that it's intended to operate in respect of uh, each separate business activity that is conducted by an individual. So sometimes an individual will be part of a partnership, and that's where the partnership rules will apply, where a business is being carried on and it consists of at least one individual as a partner in that partnership. When that happens, then Division 35 may apply to non-commercial business losses. The differences in the rules is that when we apply the assessable income test or the real property test or the other assets test to a business activity that is being carried on by an individual in partnership with another entity, only that part of the income or assets that relates to the interests of the individuals in the partnership is taken into account. The income or other assets of the other entities, for example, it might be a company or a trust that the individual is in partnership with, those amounts are ignored when you're applying the accessible income test, the real property test, or the other assets test. And furthermore, the income derived or the assets owned or leased by a partner, otherwise then as a member of that partnership, is also ignored in applying the tests. To look at the further guidance from Division 35 that's written in the Income, Tech, income Tax Assessment Act 1997, we also look at the ATO guidance and the, the, the general one that they use is Taxation Ruling 2003-3 in relation to non-commercial business losses. And that is the application of section 3510-2 and section 3510 subsection 4 and how that relates to business activities carried on in a partnership. And what the ruling also does is not only does it look at those two subsections of 3510, which is the general rules as they relate to the non-commercial business losses, it also takes into consideration Division 5, Part 3 of the 1936 Income Tax Assessment Act, which deals with partnerships in general. Uh, specifically, we're looking at Section 90 and 92 of Income Tax uh, Assessment Act 1936. So what the ruling does is it provides examples and clarification where an individual taxpayer either carries on multiple business activities in a partnership, or it also looks at 
the partnership as a whole, or it also looks at situations where an individual may be carrying on a partnership with another entity, such as a company or a trust. So therefore, what is said in the ruling is that section 3510 subsection 2 should not be applied by just simply using the amount of the assessable income or the allowable deductions that they would have calculated under section 92 of the Income Tax Assessment Act 1936. Now, what are we really getting at here? What we're getting at here is situations where you have a partnership that has multiple businesses. And so you may have a multiple businesses inside a partnership and one of those businesses is profitable and one of those businesses is incurring a loss. Now, the way that section 90 of the 1936 Act defines net income of a partnership, and that is that all the assessable income less the allowable deductions of the partnership is calculated as if the partnership was a resident taxpayer. So how does this apply? If you look solely at section 92 and section 90 of the Income Tax Assessment Act in 1936, that would mean that section 3510 subsection 2 would be ineffective if multiple businesses are carried on by the same partnership. Uh, the loss deferral rule would not necessarily drill down into the specific business activities that would apply if the individual that is a partner in that partnership would specifically uh, deal with that business activity. Now, that kind of comes across maybe a bit, you know, like a, a fair amount of information has come across and it's, it's hard to understand. So one thing that tax ruling 2003-3 goes into is examples. And it might be, might be prudent at this point to specifically talk about an example. And uh, this is taken directly from tax ruling 2003-3. And that is that Jane and Andrew running two business activities in a partnership, in a 50-50 partnership. One of them is a computer software consulting business and the other business is a small horse stud. The, the computer software has assessable income of $210,000 and a profit of $150,000. The horse stud has assessable income of $24,000 and a loss of $27,000. So if you're looking at section 92 of the Income Tax Assessment Act 1936, the net income of the partnership is $123,000 being the $150,000 profit from the software company less the $27,000 loss from the horse stud and that would be $61,500 each to Jane and Andrew as a 50-50 shareholder, 50-50 uh, partners under section 92 of the 36 Act. So then therefore to eliminate this situation happening in the partnership, section 35-10 Subsection 2 requires that the assessable income of each business activity be examined separately for each individual. For each individual, their share of the assessable income for the horse stud is $12,000. That is being half of the $24,000 assessable income. And that's under the $20,000 limit that we just mentioned at the top. And therefore, that would normally be required to be deferred. However, if we look at section 3525 of the 1997 Income Tax Act, which deals specifically with partnerships, and it deals specifically with the application of the assessable income test in partnerships as it relates to the non-commercial business loss activities. Subsection A of 3525 allows an individual 
when dealing with the assessable income test to ignore only amounts that are attributed that are attributable to the interest of the partner that is not an individual in the partnership net income or loss for that year. So in this example, as both Jane and Andrew are individuals, then therefore the total assessable income is taken into account for the purposes of the assessable income test. That means that their total assessable income is $24,000 and therefore the income, the assessable income test is passed. The loss from the Horstad activity does not have to be deferred by either Jane or Andrew. Now, how does the rules in subsection 3525 really apply and how does it really create this special rules that exist in section 3510? Because if you've got two individuals there, I've just run through how subsection A of 3525 applies to two individuals that are running in a partnership and it actually works exactly the same as section 90 of the 36 Act. This is where the special rule comes in. So the exact same situation occurs, except we're going to add in a company that has an equal share. So let's call it JA Investments Proprietary Limited. The whole result changes. Instead of having a 50-50 split between Jane and Andrew, we now have one third each between Jane, Andrew, and our company partner, which is JA Investments Proprietary Limited. So that section 3525 requires that the interests of any non-individual partners are ignored when applying the assessable income test. So instead of it being a 50-50 share of $24,000 for that horse stud, which is $12,000 each, applying to the assessable income test, only two thirds of that $24,000, which is one third of the $24,000 is $8,000 each, Two individual partners totals $16,000. Only those two shares that relate to the individuals apply to the assessable income test. So therefore, as $16,000 is less than the $20,000 limit for the assessable income test, the assessable income test fails and the loss must be deferred in relation to the horse stud. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. When it comes to tax talks, I'm no podcaster. But I am an accountant, and every day I advise on claims and deductions. Trouble is, I hadn't been looking after my own business. Well, with the government's tech rebate ending soon, I signed up to DocuSign, and I've gone 100% digital. It streamlined everything from onboarding to invoices. Now I kind of wish I'd taken my own advice sooner. Sign up for your free trial at docusign.com.au. Next time, DocuSign. The aim is basically to always treat the partners like a sole trader, correct? When you look at these rules, it's basically always how a sole trader would fare in all this, correct? Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's clear from the scheme that applies of Division 35 for these non-commercial business activities is that the rules are intended to operate in respect of each separate business activity would be conducted by an individual irrespective of the, whether the activity is actually carried on by that individual alone or as a partner in a partnership. Okay, good. So this was the assessable income test. Do you mind if I just quickly go back to the um, income requirement because I happen to be outside of the room when you, when you covered that. The income requirement that you must not have income of over $250,000, that is for each partner separately, correct? 
That's right. And I can explain why that's the case. The $250,000 income requirement is specifically listed in section 35-10 subsection 2E uh, of the Income Tax Assessment Act 1997. And if you look directly at section 35-25, which applies to partnerships, the alterations of the general rules apply only to section 35-30, 35-40, and 35-45, which are the assessable income tests, the real property tests, and the other assets test, respectively. Therefore, as the $250,000 income requirement relates solely at the individual level, uh, in your question, one partner might be able to claim the loss and one might not. And when you listed the assessable income test, the real property and the other asset test, you didn't list the profit test. So that means the profit test again is at the partner level and not for the um, partnership as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So there may be instances where you would have a partner that has assets that are used in the business activity that are outside of the partnership income that you would calculate if you were, say, for example, preparing a sets of financial reports or you were preparing a partnership tax return. One good example of that may be that one of the partners individually has made a borrowing in order to contribute, say, working capital or borrowed in order to fund the acquisition of assets that are used in the partnership. And the individual partner in that instance is claiming a an interest deduction, which is based on that business activity. That's definitely an, ins uh, an instance where an individual partner may have a profit on the partnership income and one may have a loss on the partnership income. So that's why it applies solely at the individual level and not necessarily at the partnership level. I was going to talk about grouping if that's okay, because I mean, I feel like we've got the, um, the, the profits test is not covered by partnerships because as we've just sort of mentioned, they do apply at the partner level. So the one instance that may occur, the other tests and how the other tests may occur is, is very similar to the way in which profits tests may occur on an individual basis. So as we sort of mentioned there, there, there might be an instance where one partner is making a profit from the partnership activity and another partner is making a loss, maybe due to a borrowing or depreciation from an actual asset. That, that coincides with uh, the way that the other asset tests and the real property test does work. There are circumstances where one individual partner in a partnership may be supplying or utilizing in the business activity, either a piece of real property or some other assets. And the way that that works in terms of that is that the, the individual share of the real property assets or the other assets is taken into consideration when we're talking about whether they the individual themselves can apply the $500,000 or the $100,000 rule as part of, of whether they can apply the loss deferral rules, whether the tests can be passed in those instances. So for example, if you've got the real property test, you may have three individuals that are equal partners in a business and they may own four offices in their partnership that are being used in a continuing basis. And those four offices may be worth $450,000. So as a partnership, they are underneath the $500,000, but they're all individuals. So they can all utilize the total $450,000 in that instance. If we have one of the partners 
that owns a fifth office that the business also uses. And that office, that fifth office is worth $70,000 and one of the partners owns it outright. That individual may then pass the property, the real property test, because the partnership themselves, all as individuals had 450,000. And then the fifth office that is owned by one individual partner being worth $70,000 would put them over the $500,000 limit. Uh, so in that instance, say two of the partners may not be able to utilize the loss of the, well, they would have to utilize the loss deferral rule. And then one partner would be able to offset that against other accessible income. And the same thing essentially applies with the other asset test as well. Whereas an individual member may be bringing a piece of plant and equipment into the partnership that is being used on an ongoing basis in that business activity, uh, it just might not be owned and I say deducted by the partnership itself. So the grouping only applies to the real property test and the other asset test, correct? We don't have grouping for the accessible income or profit test, correct? No, no. So grouping applies. Sorry, I, I answered the question about the the real assets test and the, the the other assets test as they relate to partnerships in general. But I can talk about the grouping of business activities in this instance as well. So there are definitely situations where a partnership whether it's comprised of entirely of individuals or whether it's comprised of some individuals and some other entities, such as a trust or a, a company, may be operating more than one business activity inside that partnership. And where a taxpayer groups one or more similar business activities, uh, and this is under section 35-10 subsection three, where they are similar activities the activities can be treated as one single activity for the purposes of Division 70, uh, the, for the purposes of Division 35. So consequently, when identifying each separate business activity for the purposes of tax ruling 2003-3, similar activities have been grouped together and are treated as one business activity. Now, it's not only tax ruling 2003-3, but also tax ruling 2001-14, that goes into detail about the approach that the ATO uses in determining whether similar business activities may be grouped. And in that ruling, the ATO states five factors which can be used to determine, and this is on a subjective scale and not necessarily an equal weighting, whether the similar activities can be grouped together for the purposes of the non-commercial loss provisions. These things are the location of multiple businesses, uh, the assets used in a business, uh, the goods or services that are produced, uh, and the interdependency of the activities and the commercial links of those activities and whether they are, you know, really similar, whether they can be perceived as similar when, when we're talking about how multiple businesses can actually run uh, as one, you know, group business. So in tax ruling 2001-14, there are many examples, and I just wanted to go through three sort of a yes Three sort of examples where, yes, the similar business activities would apply and three quick situations where the ATO would say that that's not a similar business activity. The three examples that they have provided in that tax ruling that relate to similar business activities. The first one was there where an individual operated a retail flower shop, um, I, for example, was a florist. And then as well as opening, uh, as well as operating that retail flower shop, they operated a delivery service for the items that were sold in that shop. Those two activities 
whilst if you, you know, one's a retail shop and one's a delivery service, they have enough in common for them to be considered similar. When we talk about the location, the assets used, the goods and services, and the interdependency of those uh, activities in relation to one business activity in general. A second one would be an individual who operates a food retail business in one location and then opens a second food retail activity in another location and along with that operates a cooking class. Again, the, the interdependency of those activities, the commercial links that are involved uh, from the ATO's perspective, you know, they, they are happy to utilize a situation where both of those activities are the same and similar and then so you can group them for the purposes of Division 35. A third activity that they considered to be similar so that you could group them together would be somebody who is an individual who is a salaried journalist. So as they are in salary, that's not a business activity, but the, the salaried journalist operates two different activities, but they're in a similar field to the journalism. One of them is for writing poetry for books, and another is writing screenplays for television. Again, it's the, the, the assets and the, the human resources that are utilized in that business uh, and the types of goods and services provided. So such a similar standard that they would consider those two similar uh, activities so for, the, for the purposes of, of Division 35. There's also three examples that we have for not similar business activities. This is instances where the ATO would say that both business activities would need to be dealt with separately for the purposes of Division 70, uh, for the purposes of Division 35. The first one was a, a rural landowner who operates a grapevine business on that land. They would be selling grapes, for example, as well as having a business activity where they provide various contract services relating to rural land, like helping their neighbors with spraying, mowing, and weeding, etc. Yes, some of the plant and equipment may be similar, but generally speaking, you would be doing that contract services are at a separate business location and you would also they're completely different in terms of the way in which you are you know getting business from those activities the second one that the ato regarded as not similar business activities would be an individual who runs a fresh chicken retail operation at country markets on the weekends as well as a takeaway food shop in a country town so instead of you know producing or providing, you know, raw meat for purchase at a market. You are, you know, cooking the food, you're providing it, you, you're creating a markup and so on and so forth. They're obviously at two different locations. They use completely different assets for plant and equipment uh, usage. The, the HO would not consider them to be similar business activities. And then the, the third example that they have provided uh, is a couple. Uh, so they would both be individuals for, uh, for obvious reasons who undertake farm-based activities at their rural residence. For example, they may be raising some livestock and growing vegetables for sale. You know, for example, they could be at a country markets or at a country location where you are to sell livestock, as well as doing a second activity in partnership where they're leasing another premises to operate a bed and breakfast business in another location. So in those instances, this is where we can group activities and take advantage of, for example, the assessable income tests or the other assets tests or the real property tests, because the business activities are of such a similar nature where we can group them together. And then three examples where no, you would need to separate the assessable income test and separate the real property test and separate the 
other assets test because they would not be considered similar. I have another question, and that is, do you remember the example you used where there was a partnership with three partners and they used five offices, but only four offices were owned by the partnership? The fifth office, for it to be counted into the um, real property test, does it need to be held by the partner in individual names or could that fifth office also be held by the SMSF, for example? The way that I read section is that it would need to be held in the individual name. They specifically do state when they're talking about the real property tests in section 35-25, it is assets that are owned by the individual and not by another entity. The, the, the terminology used is it specifically excludes entities that are not individuals. And as we all know, an SMSF is a trust. So the trustee would be the holder of that asset. Even though there might be a situation where the individual partners may be trustees of the self-managed superannuation fund, they're still holding that asset as trustee for a trust, being a superannuation trust or otherwise known as a self-managed superannuation fund. So in, those in, in that instance, for the real property test, it would be excluded. And that is fair because for the sole trader, the assets that are held in his or her SMSF are also excluded. So then it's the same treatment. So it, it, it sounds fair. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Even though it really will be a problem for many who are holding their business assets through an SMSF, but at least the rule applies to all and not to some and not to others. Yeah. That's correct. Can I just quickly, uh, hopefully the internet connection lasts for me saying that, I mean, we might not get through it, we see. But basically, we have three different approaches. The first difference in approach is that one is, are we looking at the partnership as a whole or are we looking at each individual partner? That's one approach. Another approach is we are taking parts that are held by a company or relate to a company or are attributed to a company. We are taking those parts out and are only looking at the individual partners. That's another approach. Then the third approach is we, we are adding things back when they have been held or attained by an individual partner. That's the third approach. And I think those are the three different approaches we are using, correct? This is probably not a very good summary, but... Uh. No, that, that's right. That's the three approaches that you need to take. And ultimately, you need to look at the way in which your client's partnership structure is uh, maintained. Obviously, the thing about partnerships is that they are a separate tax entity because we, we've got Section 92 and 90, 90 of the uh, 1936 Income Tax Assessment Act. And ultimately, that's what you need to do. You need to look at whether... All of your partners are individuals, and as a result of that, they may be able to apply the entire assessable income of each business activity, whether there are companies or trusts involved, which then can, you know, cause changes to the rules, and whether an individual independently of the partnership brings in assets, whether they're real property or whether they are other assets, to, to determine whether they you know, can, can then utilize the small business loss rules because as, and this is, this is coming from the ATO as well. They talk about this in, you know, tax ruling 2003-3. Again, it, it's clear when they were writing the rules of division 35, that it is intended to operate in respect of each separate 
business activity as if it were conducted by an individual, irrespective of whether the activity is carried on by, uh, by them alone or as a partner in a partnership. And that can be shown in the converse by the way in which the trust loss rules apply and the company loss rules apply. For example, in the company loss rules, generally speaking, where a company is in a loss position, it, it cannot, for generally speaking, obviously there are some transitional rules and some um, temporary rules that are in place for company losses. But generally speaking, when you're looking at a company loss, it, you can't claim that against other income that is owned, for example, by the shareholders. That's just not the way that it works. That's the intention of Division 35. And so that's where when we bring partnerships into that, there are the different rules that take effect because individuals work as part of a partnership, but they do work independently. Welcome back. So these were the non-commercial loss provisions for partnerships with Ben Miller of Wolters Kluver and a big thank you to Ben for basically running the show all by himself. So just to summarize what Ben had just outlined, the income requirement is very straightforward. It is per partner. Whatever the total of your taxable income plus fresh benefits plus super plus investment losses, whatever that total is, that is what you match to the $250,000 threshold. So there is no grouping, no adding apart from adding those four components together and also no subtracting. But the assessable income test, on the other hand, is more complex. It is per partnership. So you start at the partnership level and you look at what the partnership's assessable income is. And if it is at least 20,000, then all is good. But then there are possible adjustments at the partner level. For an individual partner, you might add assessable income if the partner earns income from the same business activity outside of the partnership. But you might also subtract assessable income if one of the partners is in a company or trust. Actually, that subtraction, when one of the partners is a company or trust, that subtraction you already do at the partnership level. And so for the assessable income test, you look at the partnership's assessable income and then you add income or subtract income at the partnership level or the individual partner level. So it's more complex. The profit test is very straightforward again. Whatever each partner's profit is over the past five years, that goes into the profit test. No adding and no subtracting. Just be careful with the deductions if you also earn income outside the partnership from this particular business. For the real property test, you start with the whole partnership again, but then deduct any shares attributable to corporate partners, just as you did with the assessable income test. And then for each individual partner, you can include property they own in the individual name if the partnership business uses this property. Remember the example Ben used where one partner owned the fifth office in individual name, but it was used by the partnership and hence it was added to his share of real property. So as a result, you might have one partner passing the real property test and another not passing it. But of course, you have that with all five tests, with the income requirement and the four additional tests. One partner might pass it and another might not. And then just quickly, the other asset test, the same rules apply to the other asset test as the real property test. They really use the same logic, those tests. So that's it. Those are the four rules, the income requirement, and then the four rules. These are the special rules for partnerships. I can't tell you yet 
what we will cover in the next episode, next Monday. It is early in the year and so the pipeline is very short. I have a recording tomorrow for the next episode and that recording will cover a practice management question. So most likely it will be that topic. So until next week, thank you for listening and thank you to DocuSign for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. Bye.